I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, whether it's on Instagram, TikTok, or in the New York Times, why is minimalism all the rage these days? We have access to so much all the time, whether it's digital content or fast fashion or places to travel, at least pre-pandemic. Minimalism becomes a way to impose some discipline on that and remind yourself that we don't need so many options, that we don't need to make all these choices all the time. And later, how places and spaces impact our sense of well-being. Hospital patients who have uh, views of nature from the windows of their rooms showed faster healing and, and lower requirements for pain medication than hospital patients who had views of, of brick walls. We'll take a deep dive into the history of minimalism, dating back to the Stoics and ending in the work of Steve Jobs, and also speak to a decluttering expert that's coming up on Life Examined. Minimalism is in these days. It's the idea of simplifying your life, lessening possessions, tossing out all that old stuff, even jettisoning a job or acquaintances that don't bring us, quote, joy. The philosophy and practice of a simple life goes back for centuries. The ancient Stoics spoke about focusing on the things that are in our control. Early Christian doctrine believed that austerity in the simple life would bring them closer to God. And Zen Buddhism is based on the philosophy of letting go and emptiness. Minimalism is also seen in contemporary culture, in architecture, art, and lifestyle. The modernists of the 1960s made simple, empty spaces elegant and worthy of appreciation. So, can minimalism really make us happy? Is less stuff the answer? In his book, The Longing for Less, Living with Minimalism, author and contributing writer at The New Yorker, Kyle Cheka, traces the origins of minimalism and the dissatisfaction with materialism. Kyle Cheka, welcome to Life Examined. Thanks for having me. You go far back in time to look at where this idea of minimalism comes from. I mean, this is not this is not just a modern fad that we talk about now, but but something that's has some really interesting roots. Where where do you begin your research in the book? Uh, in in the book, I start talking about the Stoics, actually, so the evolution of a kind of minimalist philosophy. And I think for the Stoics, there was a sense that you know, you, you shouldn't resist what's happening to you in life. You should kind of accept what's around you uh, and appreciate it for what it is. And I think that's an attitude that continues to inform the minimalist lifestyle that we see today. Yeah. How, how did they think about, I mean, just material goods or how one should surround themselves by such things? I think the, the Stoics had a sense that material goods shouldn't be how you define your life. Like you shouldn't be so tied to them or caught up with them that you couldn't just lose them at a moment's notice. You should accept that physical things were not the ultimate point of life. Uh, but at the same time, I think there was an appreciation, you know, for the benefits of having nice material things. Well, th this takes us to uh, obviously a very important moment, which is Christian thought and how that begins to enter um, just this, the psyche in the West and even in the East. What, what did you find looking into Christianity? I mean, minimalism to me is always this sense that austerity is better than excess and that living simply is a good thing. And I think after you kind of have the excess of Roman society or the perceived excess of that civilization, then that meets the kind of forced austerity of early Christianity uh, as a kind of rebellion against the material culture. So you have early Christians, you know, worshiping in secret and kind of hiding their practices and the suffering of Jesus and, and lots of other stories that we could talk about. Uh, but I think that kind of suffering and austerity becomes a core part of the religion. And I write a lot about Francis of Assisi, who's kind of associated with extreme austerity. Francis of Assisi was alive in the 12th century into the 13th. And his whole practice of religion was to suffer as much as possible and to live as simply as possible. So his whole order now is, is still marked by these very simple gray robes with, with rope belts, maybe. But there are lots of kind of almost funny stories about Francis of Assisi that he would go to a monastery and monks would have prepared a nice room for him. And he would say, no, 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 I will go sleep in, you know, the, the dirtiest hovel that you can find uh -huh. because I have to suffer as much as possible. And I'll use a rock for my pillow because 
to suffer and to go without is to be closer to God, uh, which is quite minimalist. At the same time, I feel like if we just do a quick survey of world religions, and I mean, to me, they, they kind of talk about the early Christian eras as kind of axial age. There was also uh, Buddhism flowering in the East and uh, interesting also schools of thought in China. I mean, there is this consistent thread that we need to kind of look closely at possessions and what they mean to us. It wasn't really just a Christian thought. No, I think minimalism or this wider philosophical idea of minimalism is something that kind of recurs across human civilizations, and it's something you can find in any period of history. I mean, I think with Zen Buddhism minimalism became this this particular way of life and was adapted to the specific circumstances of Japan at that point, which was an isolated society. And you can see people taking pleasure in like the very simple occurrences of nature and observing the world passing around them. It, sometimes it seems to me that this kind of spirituality and seeking for austerity is a response to a crisis or a period of difficulty where you kind of cut down in order to survive. And, and that might be some part of the religious aspect as well. That's interesting. Are, are there other examples of that where minimalism arises out of crisis that come to mind? You certainly see that in America more recently. Uh, so I looked at in the, the 1970s, there was actually a, a movement called voluntary simplicity. And that was partly a response to the, the hippies and the kind of back to the land movement where you know, what became appealing was not more material gain, but finding your own place in the world and, and living as simply as possible. Um, so I think that kind of came out of an identity crisis. Like, what happens after the 60s? Uh, maybe we should cut down and, and become as simple as possible. And I also think this, this current wave of lifestyle minimalism has certainly followed the financial crisis in 2008, mm. which... You know, the, the financial crisis made so many people have to rearrange their expectations for material life, um, whether, you know, finding a job or buying a house or just defining yourself by the things that you consume. Just staying for a second, though, in Japan, in Zen Buddhism, what what do you think they were they were aiming for with those just beautiful temples, uh, the simplicity of approach? What did you, what's your sense of it? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a very specific aesthetic associated with Zen Buddhism. And I think partly, partly it was actually a result of, of the fact that Japan at that point was not a very rich country or a rich nation. There was not a huge amount of material comfort. There wasn't a ton of, um, you know, material construction or very fancy goods. I mean, the <laughs> that, there's a lot to explain there, I guess. But um, with Zen Buddhism, there was this, also this idea that aesthetic emptiness could be valuable. So not just spiritually emptying yourself, but also having these aesthetic images of emptiness to meditate on. Mm. And I think you can see how the blank spaces of an ink and water painting evoke an elegant idea of emptiness and they kind of emphasize emptiness as something worthy of appreciation. And you can also see it in the classic rock gardens uh, that emerged at Zen temples around the same time in the 10th century where they, they strive to depict some kind of infinity or a transcendence of the world. Uh, but to do that, they use these rocks <laughs> that they actually you know, they're seen as this field of emptiness, this, this abstraction, but they're also meant to represent water and the kind of infinite waves of the ocean or a, a moving river. Mm. And I always find that metaphor very poetic. Yeah. And, and when you're in that style of architecture or in a rock garden, there's also just that, that idea that whatever the prominent feature is, maybe it's the larger rock of all the small ones, um, begins to fully take form and shape and is appreciated for what it is because mm. it's it's separated by the kind of nothingness around it, which it seems to me yeah. is, is just a primary tenant of, of a lot of these uh, aesthetics or schools. Totally. There's this mode of contrast or like contrast as a, as a aesthetic strategy 
where in a rock garden you have the rippling field of small rocks that might represent nothingness or might represent the infinite ocean. And then you have the one singular larger rock emerging out of that. Uh, and the contrast between the emptiness and the single figure of the bigger rock really makes you focus on the characters, the characteristics of that bigger rock and kind of analyze it closely and mm -hmm. see it see it for all that it is and, and see it as worthy of intense focus. Yeah. How did this stuff begin to penetrate the American cultural psyche? I, I'm always fascinated by, um, you know, whether it's Thoreau, Emerson, the, the transcendentalists, I think, had had a big role in this. Yeah, there's there's so many forces that converge, I think. I mean, you have simplicity as a kind of running theme of human civilization that always is the opposite face of the coin to excess. Um, and you have the kind of sense of self-definition that America has always had, I think, since its founding. Um, the idea of individualism and, and creating your own space in the world. And I think those things meet in Thoreau a little bit where, you know, he goes to his cabin by the pond and creates a dwelling for himself and lives as simply as possible and the message is kind of that anyone can build their own space in the world with their own two hands, and we can and should create ourselves and do without the the kind of trappings of civilization that we think we need. Yeah. Um, it, it's interesting. I, I feel like for a lot of people, they identify with a Thoreau-like version of minimalism because it feels a little more secular. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you talked earlier about Christian thought and, and how a, a minimalist approach might lead you closer to God. But I wonder, in a sense, what the transcendentalists were thinking. Like, what was their underlying philosophy of why a minimalist life is a good one? It might be a moral one, mm -hmm. I suppose. Like, the, the pursuit of simplicity and self-reliance gets you away from the maybe complicated or corrupt society that's around you. Yeah. Uh, so it is a sense of isolationism sometimes, and I, and I think kind of purity almost, which is another idea that plagues minimalism. So after the Transcendentalists, where do you find this continuing in, in the U.S.? I think I would talk about where minimalism literally comes from, which mm. is uh, the minimalist artists in the 1960s in New York. Uh, so this is where, you know, at that point in the in the mid 60s early 60s a few artists in manhattan were kind of embracing industrial materials and very simple objects uh as the key to their art practices so it was people like donald judd making a box out of aluminum and putting that in a gallery hmm. or dan flavin using fluorescent light fixtures and calling that art or the painter agnes martin just painting square canvases with very light grids uh, and you know, saying that that's all she needed to do. Um, and I think those minimalist artists, even though they didn't agree with the label of minimalism, were making a virtue out of simplicity and were showing a way for people to appreciate austerity and simplicity as aesthetic values. Yeah, what do you, what do you think their, their thesis really was? Like, could you go a little bit further into that as to why that aesthetic to them was so important? Yeah, I think... To me, it feels the most like a response to abstract expressionism. So that was the art movement in New York in the 40s and 50s, where painters were just painting wild gestural canvases mm -hmm. and expressing these kind of brutal or brilliant emotions through the canvas. Um, and the minimalists instead were about de-emphasizing the artist. And, uh, you know, some of them didn't even make their own objects. And I think it was a kind of reaction to the excess of abstract expressionism and also an argument that anything could be art if you just looked at it in the right way. Mm. So you didn't need this wild canvas and gestural brushstrokes. Instead, you could just have a piece of aluminum. And if that was the subject of enough artistic choices, then that was just as valid as one of these paintings. Yeah. Interesting. And I think there's there's something here, like you hear of schools, whether it's in writing or of other places, where you're also uh, coming up with systems of thought where you are kind of working based off elimination, 
or Mm -hmm. you're only given three options and then you create with it versus the idea of, oh, you can do anything, you can choose any color, any design, any word, which for many feels just overwhelming as a process of creation. Yeah, there's there's constraints become a virtue, I think. Creative Uh, constraints, exactly. Yeah. So to choose to work only with, you know, an industrial material really limits what you can do with it. Or working with a fluorescent light fixture truly limits what you're going to do with that object and how you're going to install it. And this, to me, I think drives it. What I understand is one of the the better qualities of, of the idea of minimalism is just the elimination of choice every day, which has, drives, I think, a lot of people absolutely crazy. Mm-hmm. I, I certainly think that minimalism in a lifestyle sense is a reaction to how many choices we have to make every day and just the the total plenitude of material objects around us. Um, I'm sure in the 21st century, you know, we have so much, we have access to so much all the time, whether it's digital content or fast fashion or, you know, places to travel, at least pre-pandemic. Um minimalism becomes a way to impose some discipline on that and remind yourself that we don't need so many options that we don't need to make all these choices all the time. Yeah. I I feel like we have to mention Steve Jobs here in the sense of how he impacted uh, so much of what we think of as a minimalist design. Can you say a bit about that? For sure. Yeah, I think, I mean, we could call Steve Jobs like the most famous minimalist uh-huh. ever, at This, I think, to this point. Um, I mean, e- even as he was starting Apple and building this massive technology company, he always talked a lot about how he lived very simply. Like, there's the famous portrait of him sitting in his house in Palo Alto, I think, and he's sitting on the floor of the living room, surrounded by only a lamp and a stereo system. Hmm. And the message is that this is all you need to live a great life and to, you know, be as great as I am. Um, and so he, he kind of showed off this discipline that I only need to surround myself with a few things. And then, of course, the Apple products themselves became this vehicle of simplicity. Uh, and they got more and more minimal over time to the point that now we're kind of looking at just flat planes of glass yeah. that seem to disappear in our hands. And there were stories that, for example, I remember in his biography that even though you couldn't see the inside of a computer, he wanted to make sure that all of the wiring and everything in it was clean and symmetric mm-hmm. and tucked away. And I remember it was this question of like, well, they asked him, well, why, why do you care if nobody can see it? And his answer was, because we know what's in there. It's important <laughs> to us, right? I mean, it's an interesting mm-hmm. anecdote. Yeah, I mean, I... I find that with a lot of the minimalist figures, actually, they, they live this like holistically minimalist lifestyle. Uh So it's not just the work that they make, but the space that they live in and even what they eat or how they live day to day. I think there's a tendency that once you have one thing really minimal, it kind of spreads to every aspect of, of what you're doing. And, you know, once you're obsessed with the outside of the phone being a flat glass plane, why wouldn't you be obsessed with the inside of it being perfect as well? Yeah. So where is minimalism now in the U.S.? Like, what? How do you understand it as being around us in its kind of current formation? Yeah, I mean, I think the minimalist lifestyle was really popularized over the 2010s, partly because of the financial crisis, partly the kind of wave of Mary Kondo-style cleaning your house philosophies, um, and then partly because of our digital lives, which I think got so noisy and overwrought that we kind of wanted more simplicity in our lives. Mm. So I think it's really, it's still thriving as an idea, and I think it holds a lot of appeal for people. Uh, But I certainly found... You know, during during the pandemic, a lot of people turned against this popular idea of minimalism that was about throwing things out of your house because suddenly, you know, what was in our homes was all we had access to. Mm, interesting. Yeah. They're like, well, this is all I have. I can't go anywhere. So there was a little bit of a revolt, you'd say? Yeah. I mean, I think minimalism these days often relies on the kind of network of services that we have access to with, you know, digital apps and stuff like that, like Uber or Airbnb or Seamless. Um, 
So suddenly when those things were less possible, when you really had to make do with what was in your house, minimalism or the extreme version of minimalism didn't seem so appealing. And I think the great irony that you pointed to here is that minimalism is now almost a product that we buy, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's something we spend money on, like a Marie Kondo or, or other things, which is kind of uh, the antithesis in many ways of what, what it's supposed to be. Right. I think, I mean, the minimalist artists were all about seeing something that wasn't beautiful as beautiful and mm-hmm. kind of changing your perception of it. Whereas I think the cliche of minimalist products now is... It's about buying a new thing that's already that already looks good to you, that already conforms to your taste. You know, you can buy a new minimalist chair or desk or lamp and then suddenly feel like you're practicing the minimalist lifestyle, even though it's probably the opposite. Do you think there will always be some version of minimalism out there? What I'm hearing from you is what a recurrent theme this is through this through the history of, of humans. Yeah, you know, from from the past 2,000 years of human history, to see how it, it constantly comes back is is quite surprising. And I think it, it kind of is cyclical, where um, a minimalist movement will happen, or a period where civilization builds up, and consumerism builds up, and materialism builds up, and that's followed by a period of austerity and simplicity. Um, it kind of seems like a temptation that humans always have or a, a thought that's always on our minds that maybe simplicity is better than having lots of stuff and maybe I should get rid of everything that's around me and start over with nothing. I've been speaking with Kyle Cheka. He's the author of the new book, The Longing for Less, Living with Minimalism. Kyle, thanks for the time. Thank you so much. Still to come, why are we so attached to our stuff? We'll continue our conversation on how minimal living impacts our sense of well-being. That's all ahead on Life Examined. Stay with us. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com slash cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard Kyle Cheka say that minimalists were all about perception, seeing something that wasn't beautiful in a different way. So how does our relationship to space and place impact how we feel? Professor Colin Elard says from the mundane to the extraordinary, our health and happiness can be directly impacted by the space we inhabit. Colin Elard is professor of cognitive neuroscience and the director of its Urban Realities Laboratory at the University of Waterloo in Canada. Colin Elard, welcome to Life Examined. My pleasure. Talk a little bit about how space impacts our our emotional states. Um, Where do we begin thinking about that subject? I kind of divide the world up into into questions of of scale and geometry and questions of surface and detail and and feature. And, And I tend to to study both and conduct experiments in both of those realms. But I think, you know, the, the, the geometric side of things, the, the influence of the scale of space on, on how we feel is, is really interesting. So I can give you one specific example. Yeah. One, of, one of the things that uh, we've spent a lot of time looking at in my lab is, is the feeling of awe. And everybody, I think, knows what that what that feeling is like. And at this point, we know quite a bit about what kinds of things feeling awe um, does to us psychologically. So we, it, you know, the feeling of awe has some really interesting effects on behavior and even even our physiology. So the question is, you know, what architecturally, what kinds of things elicit awe? And, and one of the first and perhaps more obvious things is just the scale of space. Mm. So if you walk into a a massive uh, enclosed space like a cathedral, for example, or even, you know, it doesn't have to be a a sacred space. It could be just like a giant um, uh, corporate headquarters, let's say. Uh, Let's let's say Amazon headquarters or Apple headquarters or 
or even we've never looked at this, but I'm, you know, sometimes wonder if even something like walking into an, an airplane hangar for somebody who's not familiar with that setting might, might elicit awe. So that's, that to me is, is one of the best examples of, of the, the influence of the scale of space on the way that people feel. Awe has been, has been actually one of my favorite topics on this program. We've discussed it with Dacker Keltner, who's at UC Berkeley, and it's kind of an emotion that, that really fascinates me. And to think that, uh, you know, our space has so much to do with that, it makes, makes total sense. And I, and I wonder what you think it is about uh, the grandiosity of certain places, uh, whether it's the cathedral or, or perhaps even being out in nature. Is it, is it as simple as we feel quite small, or is it that uh, there's something different going on in the architecture that, that elicits that feeling? I think certainly a good, a good part of it is that, is that feeling of smallness. Um, and we, we've looked specifically at that, and I, I know that Keltner has as well. Uh, if you ask people questions that are, are meant to kind of probe their sense of, of their own size, then you can cause changes by putting them into different kinds of, of spatial contexts, or even having them think about different kinds of, of spaces. Um, I, but I think that it's, you know, in terms of, of space, it's not, it's not just the scale of, of a space that's important. It's also other things as well. I think like the, um, the level of detail um, that a space might have. So an example here might be something like those fantastic, uh, intricate mosaics that one can find in, I'm turning to sacred architecture again, because there are so many great examples in sacred architecture, but those mo- mosaics that one might find in a in, in Muslim ar- architecture. Again, you know, not necessarily massive in scale, although uh, they often are, but it's the level of detail. And I think, you know, part, part of that is, is that we are, that awe is elicited by um, different kinds of immensity. So it's not just spatial immensity, but it can also be things like immensity of effort mm. or immensity of intellect. You know, we can feel awe when we're in the presence of somebody um, really brilliant. I have a, a, a colleague who regularly elicits awe responses from me just because listening to him is like standing in a cathedral. What about the opposite from these incredible places that we're talking about? What about the spaces that make us feel depressed or stuck or, or I don't know, in a place of grief or sadness? What are those places like? Oh, man, there's such a, there's such a range of them. I mean, the, 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 the first thing that I think of uh, when you ask that question, because we've studied some of these kinds of spaces as well, is spaces of boredom, you might say. Hmm. So uh, it's not it's not hard, unfortunately, in most big cities to find spaces where there is a really low level of of complexity, uh, just you know, stultifying sameness in a setting um, will elicit effects, not only physiological effects but also emotional effects. Yeah, can you say can you say a bit more about that? Sure. So uh, we've, for example, we've we've done studies looking at how people's emotional state and their behavioral state vary as they walk around uh, a big city, and we've done this in a number of different cities. The first ex- the first experiments that we did were in um, uh, New York, mm. in the Lower East Side. So we found deliberately found settings, some of which were quite intricate, interesting. Uh, kind of thrumming with complexity on other sites that were much more homogene- homogeneous and samey. And if you if you measure the state of people's nervous system, specifically looking at their arousal state, and you also ask them questions about about how they feel, there's a there's a palpable difference between those two kinds of settings. And there are reasons to think that, you know, that's that's important. Like in the in the long term, if if you're exposed to um, those kind of boring sites on a day to day basis, then over the course of months and years, it's not unreasonable to think that that would actually elicit an impact on or, or produce an impact on your on your health. Mm. I think immediately of New York, a place I lived for for a number of years. Of uh, sadly, of 
of the housing projects, the public works projects of New York, just these very, very sterile, sad-looking buildings of little uh, concrete squares stacked on top of each other. And I, I wonder, you know, how much, of course, politics and and uh, history of, of racism plays into the spaces we've built for people. Oh, I think it's definitely a factor. We, we um, looked at spaces like that specifically in, in New York. And yeah, I mean, there, I think there is a political element to the way that those kinds of settings are, are built because it honestly doesn't really take a lot of effort or budget to transform a housing project from kind of like a, a cinder block, almost prison kind of environment into something that's more aesthetic mm -hmm. and restorative. And I think that the reason that it's not done is is political. I'm sure that, that racism is a plays a role as well. Yeah. But it's it's really distressing. I mean we, we had people stand in front of a uh, this was a fairly small um, affordable housing complex in, in New York. And uh, yeah, it was it was not not pleasant um, at all. E even to the point I mean this is not a, really a question of space, but but even to the point of, of there being elements of, of hostile architecture. So a railing that ran along the outside of the building, for example, had, um, had spikes on it to prevent people from sitting on the railing. I mean, there's no, there's no reason for, um, for, for doing something like that other than as a kind of uh, symbolic um, affront to the people who um, are living in that setting. What about different materials, um, natural, organic, uh, things that are made of plastic, things you interact with, uh, glass, anything come to mind that jumped out at you? Yeah, for sure. There, there's actually a, a really robust literature on the impact of exposure to, uh, to nature, which has been one of the, the, the cornerstones of environmental psychology for, for quite some time now, beginning with the discovery that uh, hospital patients who have uh, views of nature from the windows of their rooms uh, showed uh, faster healing and, and lower requirements for pain medication than hospital patients who had views of uh, brick walls. So that finding sort of set into play an avalanche of, of research, um, some of it quite compelling, suggesting that, that we respond in special ways to scenes of nature. And that can be quite subtle. So it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to put somebody into a rainforest or a national park setting or something like that to elicit these effects. You can even get the effects from, from small things, you know, um, office plants, for example, in interiors. And as you mentioned, the use of natural materials, uh, wood, for example, on surfaces, um, but also even, um, uh, I think to some extent, materials that simulate the special properties of materials found in, in nature. So what I mean by that, well, for one example, we were able to show that you can get the same kinds of, of uh, restorative effects of exposure to nature by putting people into virtual reality versions of, of naturescapes. So there's there's nothing real there. There's nothing natural, but nevertheless, we're we're simulating the appearance of nature. Others have have uh, have talked about um, fractals. So one of the things that we find in abundance in natural settings is a particular kind of of fractal. And by by that, what I mean is that is that there's lots of self similarity in scenes of nature. So if you imagine something like a uh, a fern frond. Uh, th this is hard to do with words, but if you've seen ferns, you know that what uh, what happens is that the the, sh the shape of a fern frond is is self-repeating on a number of scales. So at the smallest scale, you can see tiny frondlets, and they have one particular shape, and then that shape is duplicated at higher and higher higher scales. Sorry, that's a little bit of a cumbersome. No, description. it's interesting. It's a bit like trying to describe a spiral staircase in what words I find. Um, so you can quantify, you can quantify the, um, 
the mathematical properties of a fern frond, and you can reproduce those mathematical properties in completely abstract materials. And there is some evidence that that when uh, when you do that, and this is again, this is not work that we've done really directly in my lab, but others have. When you produce those same kinds of fractal dimensions in abstract materials, you again find some kind of echo of this preference for for nature. So my hunch is that there are all kinds of, of clever things that uh, that we can do with materials that um, that will increase their positive impact. And I think, you know, I think implicitly, um, uh, architects, for example, have have always had some degree of understanding of this. So there's there's long been great interest in what what is known as biophilic architecture. The idea being architectural forms that, in some sense, mirror um, the features that we find in in nature. Well, after doing all this research and looking into in, into these big questions, I wonder how has this impacted you in terms of the spaces you like to spend time in, or that you would want to create, or or how you would design a life. Um, what, what are your thoughts on that? I'll tell you a story. There was a um, a a time when I. I sort of impulsively bought this beautiful um, leather armchair and I imagined myself using this chair. I had this whole mental image of me me sitting, you know, with a good book and a glass of wine at my side, enjoying uh, the world from this chair. And I brought it home and discovered that there was nowhere in the house where I was living or I actually felt comfortable. So the chair was basically just sitting unused. And I spent a lot of time thinking about the geometry of that space and uh, why it was having the effect on, on me that it did. And in the end, it boiled down to uh, something that again, in environmental psychology, we call the, the duality of prospect and refuge. So when we're um, looking for comfort in whatever setting, but it's a strong force in interior settings. We tend to look for locations where we have both prospect, in other words, we can look out and see what's going on in our world, whatever that scale might be, and refuge in the sense that we like to have the protective arms of the space around us, especially behind us. And so what it took for me to to, to find us a place of prospect and refuge in that house was basically that I had to build a space. I had to change the locations of, of the walls in that house to, to build a, a good location. And once I'd done that, the chair was used. So now, um, I mean, I, I don't think that's rocket science, but I think it's given me a heightened appreciation for how fundamental that attraction to prospect and refuge is uh, for people and, and how important it is to think about that in everything from the design of a domestic residence to uh, the placement of furniture in in your home. I've been chatting with Colin Allard, professor of cognitive neuroscience and the director of its Urban Realities Laboratory at the University of Waterloo in Canada. Colin, thanks for the time. We really appreciate You're it. You're welcome. You're welcome. My pleasure. We'll finish today by talking about a topic all too common for the majority of us, the never-ending piles of stuff that clutter our lives. For many of us, the problem isn't just accumulation, it's attachment. We know we have too much stuff, but why do we have such a hard time getting rid of it? Professor of psychology, Deacon Joseph Ferrari, studies the causes of clutter and the impact on our emotional well-being. He's a St. Vincent de Paul Distinguished Professor of Psychology at DePaul University in Chicago. Deacon Joseph Ferrari, welcome to Life Examined. It's so great to be here, Jonathan. Thank you. All right, big question. Uh, how sure. do you define clutter? What is it? How do we make sense of it? I, I open the floor. Yeah, go for it. All right, I've got a lot to say here, so thank you for uh, giving me the attention. Hut, a clutter is not the same as hoarding. Now, there's a psychiatric disorder called hoarding, as you know, compulsive hoarding, um, but they're, they are similar. They share similarities. With hoarding, you're talking about the... Um, a failure to discard useless uh, and, and very limited valued items. 
and they, it causes you distress. But clutter is, um, we define, Dr. Catherine Roster and I, uh, Dr. Roster is a colleague from the University of New Mexico, and she's a consumer psychologist, and we've been partnering together. So Dr. Roster and I define clutter as this overabundance of possessions. Now it creates chaotic living spaces and disorderly living spaces. So it really impacts on one's life. We have been studying and measuring this for a number of years, and we've uh, looked at clutter's impact on one's quality of life in four areas. The livability of space. How much has your life, uh, your home or your space domain been impacted? Does it cause you distress and emotional problems? What impact does it have on your relationship with others? And is the clutter impacting your financial well-being? Because Americans, U.S. citizens, have something like $7,000 of unused clutter in their home every year. So there's all this stuff that we have that we buy and we just don't uh, use. And so when people you know, are concerned about their credit cards and their uh, banking needs, well, stop buying. You know, mm -hmm. And it isn't so much um, possessions, it's the abundance of it. Now, we partner, Dr. Roster and I, partner with ICD. Now, this is an international organization, stands for the Institute for Challenging Disorganization. These are professional decluttering coaches. And we have been partnering, when I say that, I mean, we present at their conferences, they're concerned in our research that we have done. Um, and what the ICD members will tell you, notice the title doesn't say anything about clutter, is they believe, look at what you have and organize it. The big problem is lack of organization for people. Um, so don't run out and buy containers and start putting stuff in there. Instead, organize it and see, wow, I have 18 spatulas, geez, 15 pairs of blue pants, wow, look at all this paper and all, this, um, all these books that I have. ICD um, has identified three target areas where people have their most clutter, the kitchen, the closet, and books. Those seem to be the three big areas, and our research supports that. So Roster and I have looked at clutter in the home and its impact and clutter in the office and its impact. I have graduate students now looking at decluttering during COVID. Have people really been doing that? Are there types of individual differences within that? We have data on e-waste, electronic waste. Mm. And I'm talking about the um, equipment, all the old wires. Americans have, on average, three old cell phones in their home at any one time. Um, so we've been looking at all these extra laptops and monitors and wires and phones that people have. We have data also looking at uh, digital decluttering, uh, digital clutter and to declutter it. In other words, all those emails. I'm of an older generation, and in my generation when computers were out, we were told, you won't need the paper anymore. You can just keep it all there. Well, what people have done is print up the material, keep it handy, and still keep it on the computer. So we haven't done less pa paper, if anything, more paper. Mm -hmm. And so we've been looking at that cluttering. What you're saying hits a nerve with probably everyone listening, but, but why personally for you did you go down this line of investigation? Well, if the hidden agenda there is, am I a person with lots of clutter? The answer is no. Mm -hmm. But I'll explain to you, the it's kind of a historical in that several years ago, ICD had their annual meeting and they invited me to talk about chronic procrastination because that's really the area of research that I'm well known for internationally. And a lot of people who have clutter have pro procrastination issues. At that meeting, I meet Dr. Roster, because she attends that meeting, and the two of us partner, and she says, oh, I'd like to look more about procrastination. And I said, no. I said, what I'm really more interested in is psychological home. We travel and we can't wait to go home. You eat me out of house and home. We put people in a nursing home. Whenever we're together, that's our home. So we're not talking about a physical dwelling. We're talking about this sense of home. So she and I started looking at home. She's a consumer psychologist, as I mentioned. She's interested in possessions, in things that people identify with, that they own. Fascinating line of research. And I'm interested in home, not 
the dwelling as much as the sense of home. Um, so how did I get involved? Uh, I decided let's go look at home, then we look at clutter, and then um, we realized that we were one of the few people. Our first study was the dark side of home. Basically, the more possessions you own, the less your sense of home. Now, that's interesting because we're in this consumer culture. Buy, buy, buy. Or as more Gloria Gaynor used to say, if you remember, more, more, more. We want more and more and more stuff that we have to have. And this concept of the more I have, the happier I'll be, no. The lower one's life satisfaction. Um, there are other psychological issues. I can talk about that if you'd like. Yeah, or... no, I, I'd love for you to stay actually just with that notion because we yeah. think of America mm -hmm. as as you know the big mac of of consumerism and right, right. and so what you're saying and i think there there is even more kind of ancient wisdom around this too which is that uh one sense of personal happiness should not be correlated or is not with possessions so can you say more about that oh i can, I can say a lot on that because i can answer that from psychologists and as a clergyman if i may just go there sure. for a moment um, you know, Christ, as a Christian, I, I believe in the, the principles of, of Jesus Christ. And Christ never told people, don't own stuff. He never said, live like a pauper. That's, that's not the message of Christianity. What Christ said was, just don't become attached to it. See, the problem isn't so much abundance, it's attachment. It's a problem is we, we tend to get these things and we have to have them and keep them and i've got to have so truly yes we want to have consumers more 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 but the problem is we get attached to it you know hindu monks spend seven years getting rid of all of their possessions except for two gowns a bowl and two sp and two spoons that's all they're supposed to own all right and it takes them a long time to get rid of that i tell people imagine you have to go on a cruise and that's all you can pack you know, so um, there, there's this sense of, I have to have more, more, more. I need the latest iPhone. I have to have 5G. No, no, no. You have to have air. You have to have water. You have to have food. But you don't need 5G. You don't need the latest phone. You want the phone. Back to consumerism. So consumerism's goal is to take our wants and make them needs to take the things we'd like and make it that oh you gotta have and if you don't have oh you're not you're not, you're not valued like everybody else so very fascinating mm -hmm. there was a study that came out this i didn't do this i can't remember the authors but interesting study that tied possessions and all this clutter stuff if you would they don't use the word clutter but possessions with selfies and internet use See, people are taking lots of photos and posting them with all their stuff to show, you see how important I am? Ain't I important? Look at this. I own one of these. Look where I am. Oh, I, gotta, I may have no money, but I'm going to stand on the Great Wall of China to show you. Look at me. You know, so there's this sense in our culture. And I think it's gone ballistic here that we have to have more. We have to be uh, so public with all these kinds of things. And that's not what we're called to do. We're not called to own. We're called to give. We're, we're called as human beings to care for each other. You know, I, I think it was Gandhi who said there's not enough for everyone's greed, but there is enough for everyone's need. Yeah. I mean, come on. We don't have to have seven boats and seven, uh, you know, six houses and five cars. You don't need that many stuff. All right. So again, I'm not saying live like a pauper. I am just simply saying live so that we can all be having a good quality of life. Mm -hmm. I'm curious about this idea of attachment and what, what do we do to begin breaking that idea of attachment to stuff? Do you have any thoughts on that? Sure. Sure, and I'm going to give you the answers that the ICD members would say, the, these decluttering coaches. Their response to that would be, as I've learned by dealing with them, um, and if there's any in your listening areas, I'm giving a shout out. Yay! Hope to see you guys at the annual convention in September. But the um, uh, what they would tell you to do is organize, as I said before, and don't touch the items. Now, there's a current mantra. Can we go down this path for a moment? Sure. There's a current statement that uh, touch it and keep it if it brings you joy. 
Well, I, I want to talk about that, that expression. Um, okay, let's talk about the first part, touch it. So according to these consumer psychologists, and according to the decluttering coaches, you don't touch it. Consumer psychologists will say, if you go to the store and you touch something, you're more likely to buy it, to keep it. Which is why, as we know, retailers will pay extra money to have their items eye level on the shelf because you're more likely to touch it if you do that. I don't know if you know that. They pay more money for their, as opposed to the top or the bottom of a shelf in a store. So touch it, all right? You'll keep it. Um, the decluttering coaches will tell you, no, no, no. What you want, also what they'll say to you is organize it all. You notice you've got 15 pairs of blue pants. You have to bring in, they say, a coach, but I also say bring in a good friend and have the friend hold it up to you and look at it and say, do you really need this pair of pants? Mm. You've got seven like this or three of them the same size. Could you live with less? Because if you touched the item, okay, you're more likely to keep it. So this notion of attachment and this idea of uh, touch it and see if it gives you joy and keep it is really uh, the opposite of what the research and the professionals are saying. Now let's look at the word joy, if I may. This troubled me when I when this mantra first hit the press. A lot of reporters uh, contacted me because of the work on clutter and said, "What do you think about this?" Uh, I struggled. Joy is a different emotion than other than happiness. Let's say. And so an, even a Japanese reporter contacts me and says, what do you think? And I, said, and I mentioned my concern, and the reporter said, you know, you're right. The literal translation is, it's touch it if it, keep it if it makes you happy. But joy is a deeper emotion than that. You know, Christmas time we sing joy to the world. We don't say happiness to the world. Mm. All right, happiness is a temporal mood, if you would. Moods are not the same as um, emotions. They're related, they're similar, but they're not identical. Uh, an emotion is a deeper thing. All right, so happiness, joy, you're talking about other things. So the point is, uh, I, I struggle with this on a number of, of levels. Yeah. Back to your point of, of attachment, the same kind of thing. You need to let go of things and ask yourself, do I really need it? I prefer to tell people, don't hold on to relics, hold on to relationships. That's what you want. And I think that's what we're called to do. We're called to create good relationships. All right. So do you really need 12 snow globes? Mm -hmm. Oh, but this one is important. It brings back the fond memory. Well, the ICD members would say, keep it. They never tell you to throw away something that brings a, a fond, good memory. No. But the question is, do you need lots of those things? I get that very passionate about all this stuff. Yeah, it's, it's really, it's fascinating research. Yeah, I love it. I love it. I've been speaking with Deacon Joseph Ferrari, Vincent DePaul, Distinguished Professor of Psychology at DePaul University in Chicago. Thanks so much, Deacon Joe. We appreciate the time. Yes, thank you so much for including me today, Jonathan. And that's all the time we have for this week. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. You can find this show wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Have a wonderful day, and we'll see you next week. Take care.